0: For our scripture reading this evening, we turn to the Old Testament book of Joshua, to Joshua chapter 1. I'm sure that the congregation is familiar with many of the stories from the book of Joshua, and this chapter obviously sets the pace for the whole book. So we read all of Joshua chapter 1, and this chapter will be the text we consider tonight. Hear now the word of the Lord, Joshua 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses from the wilderness Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded, commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This truly is the word of the Lord. And I encourage you to keep this passage open as we look at it together this evening. Congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the book of Joshua gets a negative rating. In our modern world, but that depends on how you read it. For people find this book actually a scandal. They say, obviously, the Lord has commanded genocide, the extermination of the Canaanites who lived in this land. How can that be right? For the modern attitude is that of the global village. Can't we just all get along? Uh, just recently, I saw another bumper sticker. Coexist. You seen them? Coexist. And then, with in the lettering of that word, coexist, are the symbols of a variety of religions. Now, it is true that the Bible commands us to be at peace with all men. That's true. We don't take up active arms in this day and age to attack. Non-Christians, of course not. But if coexist means this, namely, well, let's all get along because all religions are basically the same, uh, I would take strong exception to that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And later on, the apostles will say to the Sanhedrin, about the name of Jesus, there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we can be saved, whereby we may be saved. And so when we come to the book of Joshua, we recognize that it is not popular in our world, but Christians always read the Bible in context, don't you? Don't we? We are called to read the Bible in its proper context not only literarily, but also historically. And historically, where are we at in the grand story of God's redemption of his creation? God has been with his people for 40 years through the wilderness wanderings. He freed them from Egypt, and then he was with them for 40 years. And now he has brought his people to the east side of the Jordan River. And they are, shall we say, at the front door, ready to enter the promised land. Moses is dead, for you remember the reason why Moses is permitted to see the promised land, but he cannot enter it. God told him to speak to the rock so that water would flow from it, but Moses in his anger hits the rock. And God says, because you did not believe me, I will allow you to see the promised land, but you will not enter it. Moses, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, dies, shall we say, at the front door of the promised land. And so now Joshua 1, therefore, marks a great transition. A whole new episode, a whole new era in God's redemptive work and plans is about to unfold before our very eyes. But first things first. First things first. Yes, Moses is dead, and now Joshua must fill his sandals. And so I want to minister the word of the Lord to you from Joshua 1 under the theme... The Lord prepares Joshua for conquest leadership. I want you to notice just three things in this chapter. First, the chain of leadership, or we would say the chain of command. Secondly, the equipment for leadership. How is Joshua and Israel equipped to take the land? And then finally, the call that comes to Joshua to lead without fear. Only be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Well, then, first of all, the chain of leadership or the chain of command. The new leader is Joshua. And that is a great, great name. You know what it means? I think you do. Yahweh wins. Yahweh saves. Yahweh conquers. The Lord delivers. The Lord wins the battle. It's a great, it's a great name. He's the new leader now that Moses, the servant of the Lord, is dead. And now the first chapter is very interesting in how it reveals the chain of command within Israel. For Israel is clearly portrayed as a fighting force. As a fighting force. And any fighting force must have a chain of command. You think of the United States. By constitutional mandate... Joseph Biden, the president, is the commander in chief. He is. Underneath him would be the joint chiefs of staff, underneath them, the various military heads of the various military branches, and so on down to the privates within our armed forces. But here in chapter one, it is Yahweh who is fully in command here. And Joshua, therefore, becomes sort of this human leader the human commander. And now in this chapter, Yahweh speaks. The Lord speaks to Joshua to give him his marching orders. And then in verse 10, he turns around. Joshua then speaks to the officers of the people. And then in verse 16, they in turn speak to him, encouraging him to uh, be strong and courageous. Now, by the way, if I may add just kind of a little footnote here, that whole chain of command will be broken in the story of the Gibeonites, Joshua 9. The Gibeonites are Canaanites who disguise themselves. We've come from a far country. Notice how our clothes are all tattered, our bread is old and moldy. And so, since we come from a far distant land, please make a treaty of peace with us. Joshua does not consult Yahweh. He doesn't consult the Lord. He breaks the chain of command at that point. But clearly, Israel is under a divinely instituted chain of command. Who is the head of the church today? It's not the king of Great Britain, it's not a bishop who lives in Rome. The only head of the church today is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only head. But he rules us through his word and spirit. And overseeing the affairs of the church, God in his wisdom appoints pastors, elders, and deacons to manage the affairs of the church. And the Bible tells us that these office bearers are under Christ, they are under his word, and they are assigned to teach, to rule, and to watch out for our souls. And therefore, the word minister actually means a servant, the one who does the The many things. A minister is a servant. For the only magistrate that the church acknowledges today is the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, these office bearers must care for us, and we in turn are to submit to their good rule and leadership. In fact, Hebrews 13 rounds off the book of Hebrews in two verses that address this matter. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then the author of Hebrews in verse 17 adds, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Clearly, in chapter 1, there is a chain of leadership. Joshua is under the Lord, even as he now will lead Israel. But secondly, what is the equipment for leadership? Or we might say, what's what's the weaponry that Joshua must have and needs? Well, let's think about history for a moment. On June 6, 1944, Allied forces invaded Israel normandy beach they landed at normandy beach operation overlord and you can be very sure that the allied leaders the military leadership had to give a lot of planning how many soldiers do we need how many ships and boats how many planes need to be involved in this they had to consult weathermen because you don't want to have a massive military operation in, in horrible weather a lot of things had to come together for Operation Overlord, the landing on D-Day, 1944. Because the Nazis were not simply going to lay down their arms and run. The German soldiers on the northern coast of France were not going to invite the Allied soldiers over to have a spot of tea. They were going to resist. And therefore, uh, General Eisenhower and all the other leaders needed to be very deliberate in their planning but now what about joshua how many soldiers does the lord tell him to have what kind of weapons will they need does does joshua have to put thousands of israelites to a kind of gideon test if you know that story uh, gideon tells the thousands of soldiers now if any of you are afraid okay go home thousands do well, that's still too many for the Lord. And so he says, you know, drink from the brook and we'll, we'll separate the real good soldiers from those who are not quite up to snuff. And then Gideon is left with 300 men. And the Lord says, okay, that's enough. 300. That's all we need. Well, how many swords and spears and, and soldiers does Joshua need? What are his weapons? And congregation, I must say that God's directions for Joshua sound very strange to our ears. For in verses 7 and following, the Lord tells Joshua to be very careful to obey everything that is written in the book of the law, Moses' law, to turn neither to the right hand or to the left. Okay, obedience. Obedience. But there's more, as verse 8 indicates. Joshua should speak this law. Talk about it. He should meditate upon it day and night. Okay, do it, think about it, talk about it, meditate on it. That's Joshua's weapon, the word of God. And this is the battle plan. Meditate on God's word, talk about it, and do it. Do you think this will impress the Canaanites? Do you think this will impress Canaanite armies? Now, how, many, how about the numbers that are needed for the conquest of Canaan? Well, verses 6 through 8 mention just Joshua. Just Joshua. You, Joshua, will cause this people to receive the land. Be strong and courageous, Joshua, for then you will have success. It's all going to rest, it seems, upon one man by the name of Joshua, the successor of Moses. You get the picture? Here it is. Joshua is called by the Lord, by Yahweh, to take the word of God in hand, to embrace it, meditate on it, and do it, and then he will receive victory over powerful Canaanite armies. Does this sound like a joke? What is the man Joshua to do with this? I'm to go into battle armed just with the Bible? Well, you know, the words in Joshua 1 that describe the battle plan that Joshua must follow should not sound so strange to us, really. In fact, the words of The instructions to Joshua sound a lot like uh, Psalm 1, don't they? Think of it. The truly blessed man is the one who doesn't associate with the wicked in any way, but rather his delight is in the word of the Lord, and on his word he meditates day and night. He's like a tree that is deeply planted In streams of water, whose leaf does not wither, and that bears fruit in season. In all that he does, he prospers. I wonder, was the inspired psalmist reading, thinking about God's instructions in Joshua 1? What do you think? For God's commission to Joshua, bring to mind what is written in Psalm 1. Now, Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. For it declares what the two ways in life are, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. But in Psalm 1, we have the entrance to the grand cathedral of the Psalter. And that it it sets the pace for the Psalms that follow. And Joshua 1 is a chapter that sets the pace for all that will follow in the book of Joshua. Now what happens if Joshua is successful? Remember, it's hard to believe that his first, his first instructions focus not on spears and swords, not on numbers of troops, but on on embracing and doing the word of God. And what happens if he's successful? Well, then the people of God will take possession of the promised land. And then they will enter the rest that God has in store for them. Verses 13 through 15. uh, Joshua in his instructions to the two and a half tribes. Uh, You come over with your brothers, you come over armed, we take the land, and then you can go back and enjoy the rest that God gave to you east side of Jordan, just as your brothers will get rest on the west side. But I want to just comment a little bit on that word rest. Canaan, the promised land, was not a rest home. It was not a retirement village where people could sit on the porch in the rocking chair and, you know, watch the swarms of insects out in the hot sun. That's not what rest means. The word for rest here has, has reference to being settled securely in your place. Settled securely in your place. With no enemies disturbing your life, that is rest in the promised land. Therefore, it is not rest in the sense of no more activities. It means being in the house, the home, the place, the turf that the Lord gives you. And your enemies are not going to throw you out. Think of uh, you know, we, we often use Psalm ninety-five as a call to worship. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for we are his people, the sheep of his hand. And, but If you continue to read the rest of Psalm 95, listen to these words. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. Though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, they shall not enter, what? My rest. The church is warned to listen closely to the word of God, lest we die like Israelites in the wilderness. Rest in the promised land means living and working and playing And serving the Lord in perfect shalom, perfect peace, perfect safety that God Himself will provide. What's Joshua's equipment for the conquest, for leadership? The Word of God. But finally, the call to lead without fear. You heard that kind of refrain again and again in the the reading of this chapter. Joshua, only be strong and very courageous, don't be afraid. Be brave. Well, this man, this human Joshua, needed that. But what a great future lies before God's people here in Joshua 1. And yet what a strange kind of preparation that Joshua must make for this conquest leadership. But you know, from the vantage point of the New Testament, and I I must come to this, His instructions should not sound all that strange to us. Not really. Not really at all. Because this Joshua was a real leader of God's people in real time and space, but he is a foreshadowing of a greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. For the name Jesus means the Lord wins. The Lord saves He saves his people from their sins. The Lord is victorious. Yahweh conquers. That's why Joseph and Mary are told, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And Jesus is our leader in the current spiritual warfare in which we are engaged. And therefore this chapter is really looking forward to something that Jesus made crystal clear throughout his ministry. You think of what our Joshua experienced when he was on trial in front of Pontius Pilate. And at one point, Pilate says to the Jewish crowds, well, what shall I do with your king? And they say, we have no king except Caesar. Really? You choose to be ruled by a pagan Roman Caesar? Caesar? Later on, Pilate asks Jesus, so you, you are a king? And Jesus says, yes, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. He doesn't mean it isn't in this world, it's in this world, but it, its origins are not in this world. Otherwise, my followers would fight. Now, earlier, one of Jesus' followers did put up a fight. You think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is coming under arrest. Peter pulls a sword out, a physical sword, and he swings his sword at the servant of the high priest, Malchus. Now, if I can picture what happened there, Malchus ducked. I suspect Peter was aiming for his neck, but the man ducks and gets his ear sliced off which Jesus heals. But then he tells Peter, put your sword away, for those who live by the sword will die by the sword. My kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, we would need to take up physical arms to fight. You see, the struggle that you and I have, that the church faces, that the kingdom of God confronts, is the same today as it was in Joshua 1. It is a spiritual battle from the, from the beginning. And you fight spiritual battles with spiritual equipment. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle, our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against spirits and principalities and the powers of the air. And therefore, this is what we need. We need the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, readiness for the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The Word of God. You know, um, I live near the city of Chicago, and the city of Chicago is not uh, unique in the problem that it has with horrible crime. Drive-by shootings, carjackings, murders, children getting caught in crossfire. And you know, it has been said, you do not bring a knife to a gunfight. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight because you are outweaponed. Brothers and sisters, if the church really understands that the fight we are in is a spiritual one, then political uh, weaponry of any kind will not work. It will not be effective. We have the gospel. Christ has come to remove our guilt. Therefore, we are freed from that endless struggle to make ourselves right with God. Christ has made us right with the Father. His righteousness is yours, just as your sins were reckoned to His. Christ has conquered death Death is overwhelmed by Christ's glorious resurrection. Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and Hebrews tells us that there he sits enthroned above, waiting for his enemies to become the footstool of his feet. This is why Psalm 2 could already say, uh, I have set my Holy One on Zion, my holy hill. Kiss the Son, you rulers lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And see, then Christ pours out his Spirit, and that Spirit takes the things of Christ and applies them in a powerful way into our own lives. And then we are righteous. Not in ourselves, but we are clothed in the garments of righteousness. And then God gives us the gift of faith. And by faith we lay hold of the promises of God. God. We read, we study the Word of God. Again, let me encourage you to pick up the Bible with other believers, to to take the time and make the effort to know the Bible. Boys and girls, catechism, Sunday school, these are wonderful opportunities freely given to us to arm ourselves with what? The Word of God as we prepare to live in this world against our enemies. That takes time. But the benefits, the benefits are amazing. We are ready to fight spiritual battles that come our way. No need to be to use tricks, gimmicks. No, it's pretty straightforward. The Bible is meat and potatoes, but it's very very nourishing. Let me conclude with some challenges. What kind of a war is this going to be? The war that is about to commence in Joshua 1 and the following chapters is not like any other conflict seen in human history. I mean, just think of this. Uh, Joseph Stalin was once told sometime in World War II that something he had done angered the Pope in Rome. Stalin's reply, well, how many divisions does he have? In other words, Stalin was not impressed with any statement from a, from a Roman bishop. What would impress him was military power. Well, what happened to the Soviet Union? What happens to earthly kingdoms that are not firmly rooted in God's word? That's why you and I, brothers and sisters, are citizens of a heavenly commonwealth that will never be defeated. It will never pass away. But here's my challenge. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that? How many military divisions does Joshua have? He has the Lord behind him. That is what we need. Can we submit to the Lord's word in humility, seeking his face, reminding ourselves that it is not our strength, it is not our wisdom, it's not our cleverness, that wins and carries the day? Secondly, what kind of confidence do you have in Jesus Christ? Now remember, one of his names is Emmanuel. God is with us. And throughout this chapter, we heard God say, I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Joshua, don't be afraid. Thirdly, How are you arming yourself with a better knowledge of the Word of God? Personally, as a family, with others in this church. Fourth, Joshua is told to do what God's Word says. Where are the areas of life where we together as brothers and sisters can apply God's Word even more than we have? Educational strategies, business practices... Political life, enjoying God's good creation. Now that's a tall order. I understand that. But who is who is mightier? Our God or the Canaanites? You see, Joshua 1 is a glorious introduction to what God is going to do through his chosen servant. Moses has died, and this Joshua too will die which is why he can only be a foreshadowing of a greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, who now leads us in the kingdom that shall not fade away. Jesus told us, in this world you will have tribulation. It's going to get rough. But cheer up. Be of good cheer. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And then he brings us to the eternal rest of a new creation. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, increase our faith to take into our hearts and into our lives your eternal word, the word of revelation of the great things you have done. Humble us where we have been proud. Take us down a notch when we think that our clever techniques will win the day but father give us faith in your word and a greater knowledge of your word and a greater uh, opportunity to apply that word wherever it needs to be known and applied and do this for the glory of your name not our glory but for the glory of your great name we pray in Jesus name amen